Hey, one more time. Uh, good morning. We're really, really glad that you're here. You've caught us on the third week of our series called The Gospel of Mark. So let me catch you up real quick where we've been. We talked about how that when Jesus came to this earth, his primary purpose was to show us the Father. He knew that people had been understanding God in misaligned ways. And so Jesus came to give us a perfect reflection of God's heart, God's character, what God wants us to know, and the path to have a right relationship with God. So he walked around and he said to people, will you follow me? He didn't say, would you get your life cleaned up? He didn't say, would you believe the right beliefs? He said, would you hang around me long enough to see the character of God on display, in work, in real relationships with people? He knew that if people would hang around him long enough, over time, they would in fact see God's character. They would learn some of God's truth and something strange might happen to them, something odd that they didn't anticipate. Over time, as they watched Jesus, they began to believe he was who he said he was, that he was the son of God sent from God to this earth to reconcile human beings into a right relationship with God. He said to them, would you follow me? But they began to believe. These are two major movements in the gospel of Mark. The invitation to the disciples and all of us to follow God, no matter where we're starting from. The rung on the ladder is low enough to be accessible by everybody. Just start where you are with your questions, with your doubts, with your assumptions, with your experiences. The rung of the ladder is low enough for everybody to take the first step. And then, over time, have an open heart, have an open mind, be receptive, watch, listen, ask questions, and you might just find your heart believing. Now, if you've been around church at all, you know that the word faith is an important word. So last week, I spoke about right belief, some of the content of the faith. What do we believe? What don't we believe as Christians? What do we believe? And I express to you how often I get kind of strange looks when I'm having an honest conversation with somebody and we've stripped away the initial pieces of that conversation. We get down to bedrock and they say things like, Ben, do you really believe that Jesus, like, is God's son, come from heaven, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, was in a tomb, but then was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he told his followers, one day I'm going to come back and get you on a white horse? And I, I say, yeah. And then they look at me like I have three heads. Yeah. Because it's hard for people to understand that, in part because they haven't been following him. They haven't seen the character of God on display. They haven't been intently investigating. They've been looking at a lot of other things. So today, we're not going to talk about the content of that belief. We're going to talk about kind of the other side. It's another word that is a synonym for faith. It's the word trust trust faith has a synonym term it's believe it also has a synonym term trust the word faith is multi-leveled it's multifaceted, and it's a big deal to god it's a big deal to jesus when you read the gospel of mark people's faith how they connected with god what they believed about god what they did in light of their belief or their unbelief was a big deal. Only two places in your Bible do we get the idea that Jesus was ever amazed. Think about this for a second. Jesus lived in heaven in eternity past. He has seen 
all of human history in snapshot form. And then he, the Bible tells us, unrobes himself of his regality and comes down to earth and takes on the form of human flesh and walks among us. What must it have, what must it have taken to impress the king of the universe, who had already seen everything, who was there when the waters were separated from the land, who was there when the mar- mountains were carved out by the very voice of God. What did it take to impress the Son of God? In Mark chapter 6, we're given a negative snapshot of what impressed Jesus. If you have your Bible, please go to Mark chapter 6. It's right there near the beginning. Here's what it says. Jesus left there where he was, and he went to a new place. And he went, by the way, to his hometown. And when you read this, we're supposed to have the emotion, oh, he's going to his hometown, to the people who know him best, to the people who watched him grow up, to the people who had heard the stories from Mary about his miraculous birth. He goes to his hometown, accompanied by his followers, the people that are on the journey, the people that are growing in belief. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in their local church or the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed they were amazed at jesus now that wasn't unusual it wasn't unusual for people to be amazed at jesus what's unusual is for jesus to be amazed at people they were amazed that he spoke as one with authority they were amazed at his knowledge and then they said this where did this man get these things they asked and you get a little quick insight into where they are on the faith spectrum with jesus they're not where the disciples are They haven't been following. Their faith hasn't been growing. They're not believing. They are somewhat perplexed. How did he come to understand these things? The next verse says, What's this wisdom that has been given him? And what are these remarkable miracles he's performing? (laughs) Isn't this the carpenter? They knew him by his family identification this side of heaven. Joseph's son, the carpenter, Jesus, the carpenter himself. They knew him through that lens. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother, and depending on your church background, this may sound odd to you, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Aren't his sisters, Jesus had sisters, aren't his sisters here with us? Now, it's possible these are cousins, but the word here used is brothers and sisters. It typically almost always means brothers and sisters in the same sense we think. And they took offense at him. Whoa. So the people who weren't following him around, listening to him teach, watching him do the thing, listening to him pull his disciples aside and say, now you heard me talk about this. Let me explain what that means to you. They weren't growing in faith. They took offense at him. So Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and his own home." And he couldn't do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was, and here it is, amazed at their, the negative side, lack of faith. The thing that got the attention of the creator of the universe who was there when God spoke the world into existence, who participated, who was there in the inter-dialogue of the Trinity and said, let us make man in our own image, was amazed at their lack of faith in light of what he was saying and what he was doing somehow it didn't connect they didn't have faith they weren't trusting of who he was now the other place in your bible we won't go there it's not in mark's gospel but it's in the gospel of matthew 
And this is another place where Jesus is, from a positive perspective, amazed at somebody's faith. A centurion in the Roman army who had an authority, who knew what it was to operate under authority, comes to Jesus and he says, I need you to heal somebody I care about. And Jesus says, all right, I'll go with you. And the man says, listen, now this is awesome. The man says, I'm one who operates under authority. And I see that you, Jesus, operate under authority. All you have to do is speak the word. And the one I love will be healed. And Jesus, before he does it, he says, whoa. And the Bible commentator, the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, Jesus was amazed. He marveled at this man's faith who saw Jesus, interacted with Jesus, and came to the conclusion that Jesus was operating under divine authority. He had insight into the character and nature of Jesus. He didn't define Jesus only in terms of some earthly reality. He understood who Jesus was. And Jesus marveled at his faith. Let me tell you something about trust and faith. At the bedrock of every good relationship in your life, there is a foundational trust you have in that other person. And for every relationship that you had that is now soured, 99.9% of the time, the reason that relationship was soured, is soured, continues to be soured potentially, is because somewhere along the way, trust was broken. You can't have good relationships without having trust. This is why, listen, intuitively we know this. This is why when I do weddings like I did just a few weeks ago and I stand here and the couple stands there and the audience stands there and I say to them, you're making promises today in front of me, in front of each other, in front of this audience, in front of God that you will live in a covenant relationship with each other. I stress almost always you're leaving everybody else and you're cleaving to each other so that this is a permanent and exclusive relationship. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. They, they get it, right? They're like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what we want. Yes, yes. And they are expressing a desire to build a life together, a life of trust and meaning and compassion and love and intimacy. But you guys know what happens, right? Often, too often, somewhere along the line in that relationship, trust gets broken. Maybe in a small way. You said you were going to do this. You didn't do it. You hurt my feelings on this thing and I expressed it to you. And then it seems like it didn't connect with you and you did it over. And trust begins to erode. And the thing that begins with the strongest hope and the strongest promise and the most intentionality in the world, often because of broken trust over time, splinters into a fraction of what it could have been. And marriages and families suffer because of broken trust. Now, God established two primary institutions on this world. He established the family and he established the church. And both of them are agents of his work in this world. He meant for every family to be a microcosm of the dynamic between God and humanity. That when a child sees a man and woman in covenant relationship with each other, what they would see is the kind of God who is in relationship with us where the relationship isn't broken because we experience difficulties in the relationship. No, there's a trust, there's a bond, there's a cementing together of the hearts. And so in the family, kids 
first get the sense of what a relationship with God could be like. He will love me in spite of. He will love me when I. He will love me with a good heart towards me. He will love me with a heart for my development and for my good. And the rules he makes for me aren't meant to rob me of joy. They're meant to protect my freedom and development. That's what God wants for every kid to learn. That's why God elevates the role of authority in the home. Parents to kids. Mutual respect in the man and the woman relationship. He elevates authority because he knows that kids, when they see appropriate authority, where there is trust at the foundation, kids learn to acquiesce to the authority of God as they have a trusting heart towards him. God also established the church where he decided it would be his grand plan to bring together an entire hodgepodge collection of people from different backgrounds and beliefs and experiences and ages and sizes and intellectual capacities and gifts. And he'd bring them all together and he'd say, now listen, why don't you guys let me work in you and develop you and grow you so that you can do something rather than just exist in this world. You can partner with me in, in accomplishing the most amazing privilege in the world, sharing my message of love and hope with the world. And it will take you significant effort to do that. It will not happen accidentally. In fact, if you don't work at this thing, it's going to crumble apart. Your church will splinter. If you don't work at working together with an underlying premise that I'm God in control, I have wisdom you don't have, I have knowledge you don't have, I have insight you don't have, and I know what's best for you, so you acquiesce to me, God says, to everybody in the church. You acquiesce to me, and then I will begin to work a two-sided coin. I'll work in you, growing you, developing you, changing you, satisfying your deepest longings, giving you a sense of purpose. Your vaporous life on this earth, though short, will be impactful as you get on board with my mission. And you won't just be selfish. Receiving my love, you'll be balanced and whole as you express my love to this world. But if you don't trust God's heart in the middle of that, the church and all the dynamics of bringing together such a diverse group of people gets difficult. It gets hard. We get impatient. And it crumbles. At the bedrock of every good relationship, at the center of everything God has ever done in this world, and what he wants for each one of us is a basic relationship of trust with him. And without it, it's almost impossible. Let me stretch the metaphor just a little further. With my kids when they were younger, just the sheer sound of the sheer sound of my voice and the um, compelling authority with which I speak when they were two years old. <laughs> I could walk into a room and I could just raise my voice just a little and I would watch my sons especially turn and maybe with a little bit of look of fear, I like to call it awe and respect, they would, they would begin to move their will into alignment with what I want. It worked really, really good. But as they got older, as they got their own opinions, as they've begun to have their own ideas, as their experiences have mounted up, as their individual personalities have developed, we've had to in our home, and I'm sure you guys don't have to because you're, you're, you're better at this than I am, but in our home, we've had to move from simply the sheer force of my authority in their life and the positional authority that I hold to a relationship that looks like 
influence and less like a dictator. A relationship that looks like influence and less like a dictator. As they've gotten older, as they've approached their teen years, as my daughter has moved through her teen years, I traded the raw, booming, authoritative voice in her life for a hope that she would allow me to have ongoing influence in her life. Do you want to know what the currency of influence is in a family, in a business, in a church? It's trust. When my kids believe deep down that dad has a heart for them, that my heart for them isn't to rob them of joy or to withhold experiences or to make them into my image. Instead, my heart is to develop them as God would have them grow and develop, that I would raise them as they're to be raised, experiencing the life God has for them and not the life simply that I want for them. If they believe my rules in our house are designed for their benefit, then my influence quotient goes up. And as my influence quotient goes up, I can transmit to them some of the wisdom I've gleaned, hoping that they don't make some of the mistakes I've made. And this dynamic of how trust works to bring influence is something that I didn't think of. It's right there in, the, in your Bible in black and white. The disciples were on a journey in the Gospel of Mark to grow in trust of God to grow in trust of God's character. And it takes them the entire book to get there. In fact, when the book ends, we have evidence that they haven't fully learned the lesson. Let me tell you what this means. It means if you are one who at some point in your life began to seek God and follow God and and worry and wonder about God's stuff, and at some point along the way you put your belief in God, here's what God wants from you from that moment to the moment you take your last breath. To grow in faith. And the product of that faith is that you trust him more and more and more. This is why Jesus was amazed at the centurion's faith. And he was, on the other end of the spectrum, amazed at the lack of the faith of the people who had been around him the most. Do you trust God? Now listen, in America, this question gets a little muddy because we have believed and i talked about this a lot last week that what god really wants for us is for us to be happy and good and he wants to touch the edges of our life so that we're elevated to a plane above pain and largely not completely that has been the experience for the vast majority of americans we have inconveniences, we have momentary pain, but in general, most of us are doing pretty good. And as long as we're doing pretty good, it's easy to trust in a God who we believe is there to make our lives pretty good. The disciples are going to go on a journey where God does things and is involved in dynamics that shakes up that dynamic of, of course I trust you, you make my life great. And we find one in Mark chapter 4. Here it is. That day, when evening came, here's what the Bible says. He said to his disciples, uh, let's go over to the other side of the lake, by the way. They're on one side, we're going to go to the other side of the lake. And so leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. And there were other boats with them. And then, next verse, a, ver- a furious squall, a storm comes up. And the waves began to break over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. This is not a good day. By the way, they are fishermen. They know 
If things don't change where this is going to go, they're going to end up on the bottom of the lake. I mean, they have intuitive sense. They have experiential knowledge. This isn't a good time for us. Jesus, this is so interesting. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. He couldn't have given a more diametrically opposed picture. Here are trained fishermen using the language of fishermen. I'm assuming it doesn't say that. And they have buckets, and they are bailing. Boom, boom, boom. And you, it's like you can imagine the camera zooming in on the sweat and the seriousness and, and the urgency of the moment on each of these fishermen's face. And then there's Jesus asleep like a child on a pillow in the back of the boat. It's completely diametrically opposed. And so the disciples woke him <laughs> and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now listen, this makes intuitive sense. From their perspective, from what they could see, it makes perfect sense to him. Jesus looks like he doesn't care. He's an active while I am worried. Jesus doesn't seem to care about what I want to care about. And what do I care about most? Me. <laughs> And I'm about to drown. I can imagine that's what they're thinking. And here you are, asleep, the ultimate picture of inactivity. The Bible says that Jesus got up and he rebuked. Uh, that's like a strong one. He sternly corrected the wind and the waves and he said, quiet or peace, be still. And, and then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Don't you trust me? We've come a few chapters into your story. We got a long way to go. I'm not leaving. I'm not done. Don't you begin by now. Haven't you begun by now to get the sense? And here it is for us. That everything that happens in your life is connected to a God who has a divine plan. Everything that happens in your life is connected to a God who has a divine plan. What if you believed deep down that everything that happened in your life is directly connected to a God who has a plan and a purpose for your life? What if you trusted him so much that when it appeared he was inactive, asleep, there was rather than Fear, a deep trust in his character, in his heart for you. Maybe you're thinking, Ben, that doesn't make any sense. All their sensory input, all of their empirical data said that God didn't care. Let me tell you, that's exactly what my kids say when I say to them, don't play in the street. Do you understand that when you're five years old, how inviting that street looks? Do, do you? We say to our kids, this far, no further. Do you, listen, do you, parents, aunts, uncles, have you seen this? And that kid, they're like. And then they put their foot in the street and, and it doesn't rain down lightning. Dad doesn't come and swoop them up and spank their bottom. And then the neighbors don't call the police because dad spanked their bottom in the. And so they, they learn that even if I don't trust dad, it's not the worst thing in the world. Inputs begin to happen into their life about dad's authority and dad's wisdom. And does dad really know what's best for me? But what they don't know, 
are those stories, those horrific stories of kids who were not paying attention. And the ball was bouncing, and they were engaged with the ball, and it moved into the street. And they didn't even realize they crossed over the boundary and so fixated on the thing that had their attention. And all of a sudden, well, you know where that goes. That illustration of what's going on in the mind of children that every one of you can imagine if you haven't actually seen the real thing. That's exactly what is going on in the minds of these disciples. And the heart of every parent for every child, that every child would trust the parent's heart and not out of sheer obedience only, but out of a desire and out of a trust and out of believing in the wisdom of that parent, that child would conform to what's best for them until the time that they'll grow up and know what's best for them on their own. And Jesus says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? It's a good question, but I like the last verse. This is amazing to me. When Jesus had calmed the storms, you would think that the crisis is over. A crisis averted. Everything's fine. Woo, thank you, Jesus. Emotions calm down. Blood pressure goes back to normal. Sweat begins to be wiped off the head. But no, that's not all what happens. Verse 41 of chapter 4, here's what it says. Then they, the disciples... After the storm is calmed, they were terrified. And they asked each other, who, who is this? Wow! Now listen, this is like comedic in your Bible. They're terrified at the winds and waves, and they're bailing, and they're working, and they're... And then when it's all calm, the scene should be over, fade to black. No, 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 no. Now, they are really elevated. Who is this? Even the winds... And the waves obey him. We know where our trust factor is when we believe that God is inactive. You want to know where your, tr- where your trust quotient is? It's, it's limited by that place in your life where you, where you think God doesn't care where you think he's inactive where you are bailing for all your worth your blood pressure is elevated you can't sleep at night you are sweating and deep down there's a gnawing suspicion that god has forgotten you that he doesn't care After all, if he cared, wouldn't he be beside me trying to fix what I'm trying to fix in the way that I think it should be fixed? Doesn't he know the clock is ticking? We're approaching midnight. One of the primary lessons that Jesus wants his disciples in the Gospel of Mark and his disciples here today at Four Corners Church to know is he can be trusted. And he wants you to grow in your faith Not so that you don't see the challenges. Listen, no need pretending it wasn't storming. But so that in the middle of your storm, and you contemplate God, it doesn't take you to a place of anger or disappointment. It takes you to a place of confidence and hope. So the biblical writers express it this way. They say that faith is the substance of what you hope for, even when you don't have evidence, even when you can't see it. You have a substantial belief and trust in God. Let me tell you where we mess up. We tend to put our faith and trust in what we think God's going to do. We put our faith and trust in how we've, in our minds, worked out the solution. 
And we believe that if God were as wise as us, he would do it the way we think it should be done because after all, we know everything. But that is not the kind of faith God wants us to have where we trust in what we think he should do in the middle of our circumstances. He doesn't want us to trust his behavior as we anticipate it. He wants us to trust his character as he is. A character of an ultimate loving father. This started all the way in your Bible. All the way at the first few pages. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve in the garden is the picture we get. And there's one rule. Don't eat of this tree because if you do, you will have knowledge of good and evil. You'll experience both sides. Up to this point, they've only experienced good. You eat of this tree, you will open a door, and you will have experiential knowledge of evil. And God said, I don't want that for you. I don't want you to have experiential knowledge of evil and the pain that it brings. One rule. An entire world, one rule. One father who blessed them, who provided abundantly for them, one rule. One day, Eve is walking around, and don't blame women, men do this too. Eve's walking around, and the serpent begins to speak to her. We find out that ultimately it's the deceiver speaking to her, and he says, listen to how insidious and how undermining of trust this is. Did, 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 God, did God really say? Right, listen, she knew what he had said. Did God really mean I mean, really, as you think about God, do you really feel like that's really what he wants for you? Maybe he's afraid you'll be like him. And she begins to undermine this relationship of trust that had been established in the garden where there was perfect harmony. God would come down in the cool of the day and they would have conversation face to face. Creator created. Ultimate connection. Full restitution. Full acknowledgement of relationship. Full intimacy. And in a moment of broken trust, it's gone. Relationships are damaged when trust is damaged. And so Jesus came to this earth in part to show us the character of God, but also to teach us step by step, you can trust him. You can. His heart for you is good. God is good so that when you see him as inactive it might be that your perspective is limited what this means is is that at the center of your relationship with god is a heart he has for you that is good so that when god directs you through his word or through wise counsel or through the circumstances of your life or as you do your private disciplines with him and he directs your steps he doesn't mean simply to bring discomfort to your life he's not trying to rein you in he's trying to show you his character his greatest joy is for his children to walk in freedom freedom unrestrained by the shackles of sin in this world he looks at every young man and he says my heart for you is that you would not believe the lies of this culture that says your greatest joys will come as some woman makes you happy. So get as many as you can, experience as much as you can, have free reign in the area of your sexuality. He said, no, no, no. My heart for you is you limit yourself. You hold. You wait. And you find that one person who also has a heart after me. 
And then in that relationship that is exclusive and permanent, you give yourself fully and frequently to that thing. And in that, God says, and this is where we don't trust him, in that, the greatest joys you will ever have sexually will be fulfilled because you won't have the damage, the hurt, the frustration, the pain. God says, you'll be able to tuck your kids at night into bed. Unlike people who have broken the standard, God says to all of us, listen, with your money, don't let debt ratchet up. Pay for things as you can, as best as you can. If you have debt, the scripture allows, give it to things that grow in value, not things that depreciate quickly. And make sure that you give a portion of your money away as a reflection that money doesn't have a hold on your heart. But when we don't trust his heart for us, we get all squirmy and squirrely about the money discussion. And here's God saying, I laid it out for you in the book of Proverbs in black and white language. You can trust my plan with you for your money because my plan for you is good. You can trust my heart for you in sexuality because my heart for you is good. You can trust me when I say, turn away an angry word with forgiveness and don't let bitterness take root in your heart. We hear God saying sometimes, God, well, then I'm letting them off the hook. That's not fair. And God says, look, if fair is your primary concern, you're never going to be free of that hurt. Cancel that debt against them. And trust me in this. It will not free them. It will free you. But we don't trust our Heavenly Father. That's why discipleship is a journey of growing in knowledge of the character of God. And as the character of God grows large, he's good, he's sovereign, he's in control, he's powerful. Even the wind and the wave obey him. I can trust him with everything. Everything. And when I think he's inactive, it's probably because my perspective is limited. This means that in uncertain times, you serve a certain God. And what caught you and me by surprise has not caught him off guard at all. He knows. He's not surprised. And there isn't a single detail of your life in your marriage, with your kids, at work, at school, in that friendship, at the center of your hurt. There isn't a single detail of your life that God is not aware of and that a sovereign God doesn't want to turn towards your good, your development. Grow your faith. So faith is both what we believe, the content. Jesus is the Son of God. And it's also this assured confidence we have in the character of God. We don't trust in what we've dictated to God to do. We trust that whatever he does for us is good because he's good. We trust that he has power to meet us where we are so that no limitation we feel, we see, limits our heavenly father. He wanted us to learn that in our families of origin, but most of us didn't. He wanted us to experience that in the institution called the church, and some of us get glimpses of it, but because we're all human, we fail at it. We're not completely consistent in it. So on an individual level, he takes each of us through the school of life, showing us himself. I wonder if you can imagine with me for just a moment what it would look like 
if you fully trusted your heavenly Father. Fully trusted that He knew what was best for you. Fully trusted that His heart at every level was good so that if there is a rule He wants you to bend towards, He doesn't take delight in being authority. He takes delight in bringing you freedom. So the rule must be designed for your good and for your freedom. I wonder what it would look like, my brothers and sisters, if every one of us in every area of life believed that there was a God who could be trusted and we cast for the full weight of our fears, anxieties, and worries on Him because He cares for us. This is why He left us the Testament called the New Testament. And in it are four Gospels where He worked with people, showing them over time. And it's a lifelong lesson. But each of them took major strides so that the very ones who were bailing in the boat in one chapter, later on, Jesus says to them, looks like a lot of people are deserting me. My teaching has ratcheted up and it's getting hard. And he looks at his disciples and he says, now will you leave me? And in a moment of clarity, Peter says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And you see this crystal clarity of the character of God embraced by Peter. And it brings him certainty in the middle of his uncertainty. I bet if you were to ask them, when did you think God was most inactive in your life? When did you sense his hand the least? And I bet they would all say, when we were having dinner together, and he said, it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. And before the rooster crows, we're all going to deny him. We all felt like it was coming to an end. God didn't care. We'd committed too much. We were all on the verge of regretting it. And I bet if you would ask them today, when do you think that God was most at work in your life? Most at work in advancing his grand plan in this world? And I bet they would say at the exact same time. I wonder if that's true in your life. The very moment where you're beginning to wonder the most, God, because he is God and can work where you don't see and begin, can, can begin leveraging the pieces on the board, the very moment when you think he's inactive, I wonder if it isn't really what's going on is this. He's very active in your life. And he is arranging things for your good. And there is a mental and emotional shift you need to make away from distrust towards trust. And when that happens, I'm telling you, your relationship with God will grow. Next week, I'm going to talk to you about one of the most practical implications of a trusting relationship with God. We're going, to, we're going to summarize the entire book of Mark. We're going to complete our study. And we'll celebrate in communion together just how awesome and great our God is. But today, you need to take inventory and ask yourself, do I trust Him? Where don't I trust Him? Jesus said, where your worry and anxieties ratchet up, that's the place to begin investigating where you have a hard time believing, that's the place to begin investigating. And then there'll come a point where you'll have to make a conscious choice to put your trust in Him or what else? What's your other options? Put your trust in yourself? Put your trust in some young man, some young lady? Or put your trust in the Heavenly Father whose track record is unbroken. He has a heart for you. Why don't you grab out your Connect card and let's take a few steps together. I've talked a lot about this amazing God. I believe in Him. And I've experienced in my 
short years, exactly what I'm talking about. That when I thought he was least active, he was most active. When I was most frustrated, he was most at work. So I wonder in next step A, if there's anybody in the room who would say, I'd like to be in a relationship with a God like that. I want to accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life, the forgiver and leader. I can trust a guy like that. I can afford to go into a relationship like that. I can go into a covenant with him, a bonding relationship with a guy like that. If that's you, check the box. We want to send you some information via email and let you know what the first few steps in a relationship with that looks like. Next step B, I want to get baptized. I want to go public with my faith and my trust in a God who is trustworthy. Next step C, I admit it. Just an acknowledgement. My relationship with God is suffering because I'm having a hard time trusting him. My relationship with God is suffering because I have a hard time trusting him. Your ability to say that with a forward-leaning heart can open the door to greater trust. I wonder if you just need to admit that today. Next step, D. While I was talking, maybe God impressed on you some area of your life where it needed a little bit of attention. So, next step, D. God has impressed on me where I lack some trust in him. Today, I want to begin establishing trust with God there. You turn your will. You can't turn off your emotions, but you turn your will and you say, God, I'm going to, to the best of my ability, begin to trust you there. I know you're good. I know you have a plan. I know there's no area of my life that is untouched by a sovereign God, and I trust you. Next step, E. I've been struggling with obedience and At the core, I have a trust issue. And today, I want to move towards obedience. That's you. Just acknowledge it. A statement of your faith and trust in God. Checking a box. We're going to pray about those things right now. Lord Jesus, you're amazing. God, you are so patient with us. You took three years, invested in a group of people, and you showed them the character of God. And they were boneheads, and I read their stories, and I want to laugh at them, and yet the truth is their story is my story. And so, God, I just want to say thank you for being patient with me. Thank you, Lord, on behalf of my brothers and sisters for being patient with us. God, today, we want to take a step towards trust. God, today, we want to cast our confidence in your corner. So, Lord, if that trust has, relate, has resulted in us having a sense of distance from you, I pray that God, by your Holy Spirit, you would begin spanning the gap and we would turn our will towards trust. God, if that lack of trust has resulted in disobedience and we haven't followed your plan because deep down we didn't think it was the right plan for us, God, today, I pray that we would turn our will and take steps towards trusting you. God, through the circumstances of our life, through the preaching of your word in our private disciplines, through relationships and circumstances. Show us your character, Lord, and bend us towards you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.